Blog Talk Radio. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering you to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway Pierce. to all of you and welcome to the Speedway Show. My name is Speedway and welcome to our series on successful relationships for a different kind of conversation about what makes relationships tick. Now, as you can tell by this introduction, we are talking about adult topics, so please exercise your discretion if you have young ears around. You can catch this or any other past show at any time by visiting the website blogtalkradio.com slash speedway and scrolling down to the on-demand shows. If you would like to join us on Facebook, look for the fan page, The Speedway Show. If you would like to call in today, you can do so toll-free at 877-560-6033. Uh, or you can use 760-683-2616. The topic today is Journey into Islam. Have you ever wondered what the truth is behind the negative propaganda about Islam and the Muslim faith? Are you interested in learning about a culture that too many of us don't really understand? travel through one man's educational journey today to his enlightenment about a culture different from his own. We are going to kick off with a a clip from author Karen Armstrong, author of the book Muhammad, Prophet of Our Time, and uh, she gives us a glimpse into what Islam is all about. Take a look. The very start, writing about the Prophet Muhammad was never a wholly antiquarian pursuit. The process continues today. Some Muslim fundamentalists have based their militant ideology on the life of Muhammad. Muslim extremists believe that he would have condoned and admired their atrocities. Other Muslims are appalled by these claims and point to the extraordinary pluralism of the Quran, which condemns aggression and sees all rightly guided religions as deriving from the one God. We have a long history of Islamophobia in Western culture that dates back to the time of the Crusades. In the 12th century, Christian monks in Europe insisted that Islam was a violent religion of the sword and that Muhammad was a charlatan who imposed his religion on a reluctant world by force of arms. They called him a lecher and a sexual pervert. This distorted version of the Prophet's life became one of the received ideas of the West, and Western people have always found it difficult to see Muhammad in a more objective light. Since the destruction of the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001, Members of the Christian right in the United States and some sectors of the Western media have continued this tradition of hostility, claiming that Muhammad was irredeemably addicted to war. Some have gone so far as to claim that he was a terrorist and a pedophile. 
We can no longer afford to indulge this type of bigotry because it is a gift to extremists who can use such statements to prove that the Western world is indeed engaged on a new crusade against the Islamic world. Muhammad was not a man of violence. We must approach his life in a balanced way in order to appreciate his considerable achievements. To cultivate an inaccurate prejudice damages the tolerance, liberality and compassion that are supposed to characterize Western culture. You are listening to the Spiway Show and our topic today is Journey into Islam. You just heard that the negative propaganda about Islam has deep roots in Western culture and it's our hope that talking about it today is going to shed a different light on this religion. To help me shed that light today is my guest speaker, author Colin T. Nelson. Colin is an assistant public defender in Hennepin County, which includes the city of Minneapolis here in Minnesota. As you can imagine, after working for over 13 years in courtrooms every day, he has hundreds of stories to tell. Colin has published several books, one of which is a fictional work called Reprisal. You can pick up a copy of this book at colintnelson.com or you can pick it up at amazon.com. If you would like to ask Colin a question, you can dial 877-560-6033 or 760-683-2616. Colin, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Speedway. Thank you for having me. I, pre- I appreciate it. So now, Colin, Reprisal is not your first book. So tell us about the other books you have written. Well, I have uh, published a nonfiction book uh, several years ago in 2006. It was about uh, financial retirement issues, so completely different than this one. But actually, I've written four. This book, Reprisal, is is the fourth full-length fictional book I've written. Uh, the other three, uh, I don't know, were practice. <laughs> they weren't probably weren't good enough to be published. But I, I've actually written many full-length books. Well, you know, lawyers are known to be closet authors, and um, I remember I writing about it. Yeah, I think I wrote a 300-page fiction book when I was <laughs> when I started my practice 18 years ago. That has never seen the light of day. So now the question I would ask you is, so how are you able to apply the things you experience at work to your writing? Well, the main character in my book is a, a woman named Zira Hassan, and she works as a public defender in Hennepin County. I picked that, of course, because that's the world I know. And I think a lot of people are fascinated with uh Crime news, courtrooms, trials, uh, there's just an inherent drama in the courtroom. And so I've taken a lot of the things that I have experienced personally. Uh, For instance, the way that lawyers deal with judges. Uh, The public thinks uh, what they see on TV and some movies, some of that's accurate, of course, but there are much more deeper and complex ways that lawyers deal with judges. So, for instance, I try to bring that up. 
some of the actual cases that I've handled or, or people I know have handled, uh, I've put into the book and given them to Zira as cases that she's handling. So those are, a lot of them are true-to-life <laughs> cases. Of course, I changed the names and a few of the details, but um, not much. Oh, very interesting. So now tell us more about Reprisal. What is this book about? We know it, uh, it stars Zira Hassan, the public defender. And, and, and what is, tell us a little bit more about what's going on in, in this book. Well, it's a book about terrorists who are going to use uh, American school children in Minnesota as weapons of mass destruction. Um, m- many of your listeners may remember that in Minnesota, about two years ago, there were a number of young Somali men who disappeared from the community. Uh, the FBI did extensive investigation, and their theory was that, that some of these boys or young men had been recruited by a militia in Somalia to go back there and fight, and actually some of these young men were found uh, killed or dead in Somalia. But I got thinking, well, now that's an interesting idea. I wonder where they went. Um I also learned about the time I started coming up with this idea that the disease of smallpox had been eradicated from the planet in 1979, of course, but there were two repositories that that were kept to uh, preserve samples of the virus uh, for future research purposes and things like that. One was at the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, but the other one was in Vector, Russia. And I got thinking, what would it take for some desperate Russian person to sell a sample of a smallpox virus to a terrorist? And I thought, well, it could happen. <laughs> and yeah. so I did some research on the on the facility and those kinds of things, and that's what starts it. A terrorist steals a sample or gets a sample from the Russian, and they are going to infect these young Somali men that have disappeared and then send them back, because they've been kidnapped by the terrorists, and then send them back into the schools. No Americans have an immunity to smallpox anymore. So if smallpox ever broke out, uh, it could be pretty devastating. Well, you know, I I was fascinated by the storyline because uh, I thought, well, you know, it could actually happen, which was kind of the, the frightening thing about it. Um, did you, one of the things I think I heard you say, um, and to our listeners, Colin and I met at a, actually it was a book club that uh, yes. I attend, and um, you came, and we read your book, and you came for the discussion, and you talked about how good fiction is really a function of weaving in some nonfiction into it. Yeah, I think so, uh, Speedway. When I read fiction, I enjoy learning something, particularly something that I know nothing about. And the fun thing about learning things that way is is a good author writes a good story that captivates the reader. I mean, I love to read nonfiction also, but I think it's a real treat when reading a fiction story to learn something about a different location, a different job, a different uh, hobby, people, things like that. And... So I weaved into this story a lot about the smallpox virus and what it would be like if a plague uh, or a pandemic broke out. What would the Center for Disease Control do and so on? And it was really fun research. Um, 
I also studied a lot about uh, Islam because the the villain is an extremist Islamic terrorist. And so I I knew very little about Islam before I started the book and realized quite quickly I better know something uh, to make the character believable and also for my own interest. So now, listeners, as you know, we try uh, on this show to use our life manuals as our guide to living well, living fully, and loving deeply, as you heard at the top of the hour. Colin, do you have a life manual, and if so, what is it? I do. I was raised as a Christian, and I'm still a Christian. Um, I it's That forms the center of my life, my Christian faith. Um, I... I, I agree with the ethical principles of Christianity, you know, what we might call a golden rule. And I've gotten to a point in my life where, um, partly is because of the studying for the book, uh, I've become very, very tolerant of other people and other religions. Um, I'm still a Christian. I don't think that'll ever change. Um, and that's, you know, forms the manual for my life to a great degree. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also feel it's important to give back to the community, and that's probably the other half of my manual. Okay. So now, did you know anything about the Muslim culture, or had you read any parts of the Quran before you started doing the research for this book? No, <laughs> hardly anything. Like most Americans, I you know listen to the news and, uh, of course, 9-11. Um, I didn't know any Muslim trying to think if I did. I, I think I knew one Muslim lawyer who became one of the um, persons I purposely got to know better. But otherwise, I hardly knew any Muslim people, knew very little about the religion, theologically speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and did you have any expectations about what the results of your research would be? No, any in fact... Uh, you know, in fact, Speedway, it was, it was interesting. I I wrote the book, uh, I mean, I think any author certainly has very private, personal reasons for writing, some of which we can't even, <laughs> I'm not sure I even know why I write. But uh, it, it's, you know, it's a compulsion. But when you think about, well, what am I going to offer to the world? What am I going to offer to the community around me? My first thought was entertainment. Um, I wanted to write a story that was suspenseful, that people will enjoy reading, um, and also teach them things, as we just talked about. But what happened is, um, as I was setting up the characters, my wife suggested, well, why don't you make the main character a moderate American Muslim? So that not only would she fight the villain to uh, to prevent this uh, smallpox outbreak, but there would be an added conflict between the extremist version of Islam and a more moderate progressive version, uh, which I thought was a great idea. So I took it, and uh, along with my studying of Islam, started studying Islam for the villain, I also had to figure out, well, what do moderate Muslims think, and, and how is that different from the extremist? And what happens, Speedway, is by the time I got halfway through the book, I realized the theme of the book was religious tolerance. I didn't intend that when I started writing it, but that's what came out of it, and I'm, I'm frankly very proud of that. That 
that I feel very strongly about that, and so it was wonderful that that theme has kind of developed on its own. Well, you know, that's an interesting point because one of the things that I certainly did not appreciate until I read this book was that in Muslim culture there are vastly different belief system systems all along the same continuum. So you talk sure. about Zara who's a fairly moderate and has a has a rather contemporary view of what it means to be a, a, a faithful and practicing Muslim. And then on the other hand, she has to contend with other Muslims uh, who are much more conservative and, you know, who go all the way to the extremist um, uh, part of the continuum. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit more about the complexities of relationships in Muslim culture, because I think most people just kind of think of it as sort of this one blanket thing that and, and that all Muslims tend to believe the same thing. And from your book, what was clear to me was actually that's not necessarily true. Right, yeah. That's what I found. And I think, maybe I can come back to this, but I, I think part of it is geography. There are, you know, certain areas of the world have their own culture, and they may have the same religion in name, but because of their culture, their political background, economics, history, all kinds of other things, their practice of a religion is much different than another area of the world. Um, for instance, in Judaism in America, there are, are all the way you can go all the way from the Hasidim who are very conservative, to conservative Jews, to reformed Jews. They're all Jewish, but they have uh, a much different uh, interpretation of, you know, the Talmud, for instance, the the Bible. Uh, But they're all Jews. I found the same in the the Muslim community, that even within the United States, uh, there are vast differences in how Muslims practice their faith the uh, the nuances of the religion. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, my Muslim friends, who is a young um, female lawyer, about 30 years old, about the same age as the main character, whom I got to know to teach me some of these things, actually said in the book, Zira, who is not as observant of the religion as the villain, many Muslim readers might feel, well, the Muslim, uh, the villain is a better Muslim <laughs> because he's more observant. Oh, sure. Well, uh, you know, who knows? But but to get back to your question, um, there is a vast difference um, even within the American Muslim community. But then you can imagine if you take a Muslim from Saudi Arabia versus a Muslim from Indonesia or a Muslim that's grown up in England uh, or America, very, very different interpretation of the same words in the Quran. I can imagine. Well, and now we're going to listen to another clip that gives us a definition of the word Islam, since we keep talking about it. Take a listen. The life of the Prophet Muhammad, who lived from about 570 to 632 CE, was as crucial to the unfolding Islamic ideal as it is today. His career revealed the inscrutable God's activity in the world and illustrated the perfect surrender. In Arabic, the word for surrender is Islam. 
that every human being should make to the divine. Well, see, now we're back with uh, Colin T. Nelson, who wrote the book, Reprisal, which you can pick up at colintnelson.com or amazon.com. And if you would like to ask him a question, you can dial in at 877-560-6033 or 760-683-2616. Now, I did not know that that's what the word Islam meant that it meant surrender to the divine. And I, I sort of thought to myself, well, that's kind of interesting because um, actually in my own faith I can I can certainly identify with that and, and use that. Colin, how did you go about learning about this culture? Well, I did a number of things. Uh, I've actually read most of the Quran in English, of course, um, which is an interesting experience to me itself from a Christian background a lot of the verses in the Quran are similar to the Psalms in the Christian Bible, I thought, or Proverbs, things like that. Um, there, I, I met two or three young Muslim women, American citizens, born in this country, raised in this country, uh, became friends with them, and um, you know, would meet with them and ask them questions about their religion, about their culture, so on, and then there's a um, another young Muslim woman who has written several books. I can't think of her name off the top of my head. She's a lawyer in California, and she's written several books about, specifically about being an American female with the Muslim faith. And that was critical to uh, my understanding of it. Uh, you can read all the books on theology you want, but until you read something by a person who's practicing it uh, from the female perspective, that was very critical for me to to create my character. Well, I think it's interesting that you say that the Quran read like parts of Proverbs or the Psalms. Yeah. Were there other yeah. similarities that you found between either the Quran and the Bible or between Islam and Christianity in general? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things I think that shocked me the most. Now, I'm certainly not an expert. I'm a, I'm a lay person who studied enough of this to write the book and also because of my interest. But one of the things that I think shocked me the most was, at, at least theologically speaking, Speedway, the Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are almost identical uh, they they all start from the prophet Abraham. Um, they all honor and talk about the various prophets that are found in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible and the Jewish um, Torah also. Um, it, it, they're very similar. The Quran mentions the Virgin Mary more often than the Christian Bible does. So, really? Um, of course, Yes, yeah, they they believe in the Virgin Mary. They believe that Jesus uh, was born of a virgin, um, but he just wasn't God. He was a very holy and um, wise man. In fact, they they respect Jesus immensely because they think he was extra special. He was an extra specially uh, holy and wise prophet, but not God. So at the tail end, I mean, when you follow the theology down, uh, from Abraham through the modern times, actually Judaism and Islam are 
because they don't see a divinity in Jesus, right down the line, they're almost identical. So I think that was one of the biggest surprises I had, was that theologically, all three religions are so close to each other. Wow. Yeah. Well, now, I, I, you know, in addition to the religion and the similarities, because, you know, one of the one of the precepts of this show is that actually truth is the same. And mm-hmm. um, it might be expressed differently and it might be contextualized for people in different cultures, but many of the foundational concepts about how to live which is exactly why we call the Holy Scriptures that people use life manuals, because many of those concepts about how to live are, are quite similar. So I'm I'm fascinated to hear you say that, because I'm thinking, you know, I had that suspicion, and uh, mm-hmm. to hear you confirm it is really quite fascinating. Now, I know that you learned also a great deal about relationships at different uh, levels within the Muslim mm-hmm. culture, and in your book, you talk about you know the relationship between Muslims and Allah, the relationship between Zara and her romantic you know hopefuls or at least her parents' hopefuls yeah. for her, and then you also talk about the relationship between Zara and her parents. So talk to us a little bit about what you learned with regard to those different uh, types of relationships, and start with the relationship that Muslims have with Allah and the the practices that they have to sort of keep that relationship going? That's a great question. I think, in my own mind, the way I understand it, is they're probably closest theologically to uh, Christian Protestants. And I say that because every Muslim has a direct access to God. They do not need a church to intervene for them. They do not need a priest or a rabbi to intervene. They do not have priests or rabbis. They don't have a train. They have a trained kind of a clergy, but maybe we can get back to that. But the point is, they can pray directly to God, and there's nothing that uh, that hinders that that communication or that relationship. So in that sense, I think they're similar to a Christian Protestants, who have the church to help guide them, but the relationship is directly with God. They uh, they have some wonderful practices that I think Christians could adopt. For instance, Islam has what's called the five pillars of wisdom. And each of those pillars is an aspect of their religion or theology. If you practice these five things, you can consider yourself or call yourself a Muslim. So, for instance, one of the most misunderstood ones is the call to prayer five times a day. And we think of the muezzins calling from the minarets, and the <laughs> they have yeah. very interesting chants, and because they're speaking in Arabic, and they're kind of half singing, half talking. But anyway, the whole purpose of that is not to force people to pray five times a day. That isn't it. The purpose of it is to remind people that they should communicate in their relationship with God or Allah, that they should communicate regularly, and that those communications should be mostly um, thanksgiving. So I think that's a wonderful um, discipline to get into, that every day, you know, five times a day, you interrupt whatever you're doing and pause for just a few minutes or five minutes and give thanks to God, or at least remember God and the relationship you have with God in your life. 
think it's a great idea. That is a really great now, idea. And then what were some of the other, the relationship with um, Talk, well, the are age? there any other, are there any other, before we leave that relationship, are there any other of the pillars that particularly impressed you? Well, they have, one of the pillars of wisdom is they must give uh, money to the poor, like we have tithing. Christians talk about tithing. Of course, mm-hmm. that's very important. Once in a lifetime, they are encouraged, it's not required, but they're encouraged to do the Hajj, uh, which is the trip to Mecca. And the purpose of that, again, is to demonstrate that God is central to their life. Because for many Muslims, it's an expensive, arduous trip to get there, uh, even for wealthy. They have, you know, they bring the kids and everybody, and it's it's a pilgrimage. Um you know, not unlike what Christians did in Europe and still do to this day. Uh, that's uh, important, I think. Um, they in the usually falls in September, but not always. They have a month of fasting called Ramadan, um, and the purpose of that—that's one of the other pillars of of wisdom. The purpose of that is so that they get hungry during. The, they can eat at night after sundown, but during the day they don't eat or drink anything. Uh, and the purpose of that is to remind us, even those of us who are fed and, you know, well off, that there are people in the world that are not full, that are suffering, that are hungry, and by being coming, becoming hungry yourself, you get a small sense of what it's like to suffer in other people's shoes. Um, oh, interesting. One, wonderful. Yeah, I, I mean, they're just... Granted, um, Spiwe, you know, in modern-day practice, I'm not sure that all Muslims believe all that. (laughs) Um, It's just like Christians, you know. Every Christian has, they take Easter more or less seriously. I'm sure it's the same in the the Muslim Muslim community. But at least that's the the purpose for the, the, um, what they call a pillar of their theology. It's the aspiration, right? Yes. And yeah. when we when we talk about Allah, is is that somebody different from the 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 God of Abraham, or is it the same? It's the same. Um, okay. They just it's just so yeah. I think just Allah is. I, well, I think that's Arabic for God. I I think. Okay. I'm not an expert. I think it's just the Arabic word for God. But yes, as okay. I understand it, it's it's the omniscient. Ever present, you know, ever wise, the same concept that Christians have of God. Okay, so now talk about what you learned about the relationship between um, the romantic relationships, because one of the things that Zara Hassan struggles with is, you know, how to express herself in this romantic relationship, because you know her parents set her up with this gentleman Mustafa. Um, and he seems to be uh, all the things that she might want in a mate, and, uh, of course, he turns out to be, you know, the horrible Egyptian terrorist, but until she finds that out, she's struggling a bit with how to express herself, and, you know, on the one hand, she's sort of this moderate, kind of progressive-thinking Muslim woman, but Mustafa Amar, on the other hand, is much more conservative than she is. So talk to us about uh, about the dynamic in that relationship. That was a, that was a tough 
one for me, and I, I have to confess, I, I, I'm i not certain. Well, let, let me describe it. I guess maybe that's a better way to just get into it. Um, older, more conservative forms of Islam encourage women to be virgins when they're married. And the men, of course, um, particularly in some of the societies in the Middle East, uh, of course the men are very, very concerned about that, um, you know, I don't know so much about the women, but I was dealing with an American woman who was born in this country, raised in this country, dresses like an American, uh, went to American schools. And so on the one hand, the character is certainly attracted to the sexual freedom that that, that other people have. On the other hand, Islam tends, it's, I think, it's my understanding anyway, that Islam tends to be more conservative on those issues. Premarital sex, uh, there's a more formal, I think, a more formal relationship, dating relationship amongst Muslims than there is amongst Christians. Um, I, it was hard for me to ask those kinds of questions to my friends who are fe- young females. They probably mm-hmm. think I was <laughs> not... Too much information. <laughs> But from some of the reading I did by female authors, I think that my sense, Bilay, is that a lot of American Muslim women tend to be more on the conservative side when it comes to sexual issues. They're certainly progressive feminists, equal rights, equal opportunities, uh, no question about that. But I think in their relationships with men, they tend to be... um, more conservative. And so this main character, Zira, kind of struggles with that. On the one hand, she sees American society around her, predominantly Christian, that has a different attitude toward sex, and then her, um, her own attitudes. Plus, I, many, the women I met and worked with and got to know told me that it's very difficult in America uh, to meet eligible Muslim men. Uh, you know, the population is not huge, and um, particularly for educated, progressive Muslim women in America, uh, they aren't going to be happy with a very conservative <laughs> extremist. So they're kind of lonely, I think, uh, because it's difficult to find people unless they're willing, and many are, many date outside of their religion, many marry outside of their religion. But the character that I put in the book is one who would like to marry in her religion, raise her children as Muslims. And so she, when her parents, um, the villain has actually embedded himself in the same company as Zira's father. And so they meet at a company uh, party. And here's this handsome man who's intelligent and well-educated, and and he's Muslim, and he's interested in Zira. So she... Of course, uh, at first thinks, "Wow, this is <laughs> this, this is serendipity. Is How wonderful!" Yeah, and then, of course, as you point out, he turns out to be the villain, but uh, and tries to kill her. But <laughs> up until then, yep, but um, yeah, even in their relationship, I mean, their physical relationship, um, he's the more conservative one, and so he's kind of in the book. He's holding back. She would actually like to get a little more intimate with him, uh, get physical, so to speak. He's He holds back. He wants her to cover, wear the hijab and some other things. And um, that creates some of the, the tension between them also. 
Mm-hmm. And um, now talk to me about the relationship then between the the parents and the children that you learned because one of the things that I thought was kind of um, amusing is the fact that, you know, this, this girl's parents are always uh, looking, particularly her mom, you know, trying to set her up with, with men to date with the hope that she's going to find a nice man to marry and settle down and, you know, presumably down the road have lovely children and, and grandchildren right. for, for, you know, the grandparents to play with. So what did you learn about arranged marriages and the, the involvement of the parents in Muslim culture? Uh, it depends on the geographical area, I think. Um, in the book, I put it, I, I'm not sure how, in America, in American Muslim communities, I don't know how much arranged marriages are still occurring. I, I would guess in the United States it's probably pretty minimal depending on the, you know, the community. I put it in the book just partly as kind of comic relief. It's kind of a funny you know, I, I, so many women that I know, well, even as a male, I remember my mother bugging me about one thing or another <laughs> with the best yep. of intentions, but always, Mom, Mom, I can do it, don't worry. Um, so partly, <laughs> partly I put it in just as a, just to be kind of funny, and, and it's an interesting part of the uh, mother-daughter relationship. In other parts of the world, arranged marriages, uh, I think particularly the Middle East, parts of Africa, uh, uh, Eastern Africa, I think arranged marriages are much more common. Um, where and that goes back, I suppose, you know, hundreds of years. But it's done very often, I guess, from the little bit of reading I did about it. It's done um, not to make people miserable. That's certainly not the intention of it. But it's done because a lot of these people live in um, kind of tribal. Uh, communities. And so if you're going to marry outside of your tribe, well, they want to be very careful for the protection of their their children and for the success of the marriage. Uh, You can get divorced in in Islam. It's allowable in that religion, but it's it's more rare. Anyway, so a lot of these families, the parents, will set up these marriages not so much you know, like we used to think of it in European history where they were doing it for political or you know, power reasons. That's not always it in the Islam community. Um, I think a lot of times it's done simply because they know the other family and that hopefully will create stability in the new marriage and maintain the faith and the um, the cultural principles that 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 one family has set up. They know the other family and their cultural principles if they're acceptable, wow, wouldn't this be great if our kids got married? Um, mm-hmm. You know, in Europe, the Muslim communities, it probably is minimal also. But I did find, uh, as I say, in Eastern Africa, Somalia, some of those countries, um, certainly in the Middle East, it's still done. Unfortunately, in some of those communities that are very repressive, they in my opinion and from what i've read uh i don't think islam in itself is a repressive religion particularly towards women but we see that in the media all the time and i think it's true but in my opinion it depends on the culture the politics the uh the power elites that are in control and they subjugate not only women but other groups too other people 
in order to maintain their power. And sometimes these forced marriages do maintain those power relationships. So, I, you know, certainly that can happen. Um, but I think it's geographical. It's cultural. It's it's historical. Um, I don't think you see as much of that in the U.S. But at the well, same time, my... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, at, at the same time, I, my sense is that generally in the U.S., the uh, Muslim community is more conservative. I, I think probably, generally speaking, women, um, oh, subservient is not the right. They're deferent to the husband. Now, the characters in my book aren't, but um, I, I, you know, that certainly happens in any society. Well, and that's an interesting thing because when you think about uh, even the articulation of what the spousal relationship should look like in the mm-hmm. Christian Bible, mm-hmm. what you what you find is that the man is you know instructed to to love his wife as Christ loved the church and you right. know, to be willing to lay his life down for her and and his family and that's that's the level of loyalty he's supposed to have but yeah. uh to your point though with regard to deference the wife now is supposed to submit to her yes. husband and there have been you know many a squawking by women yes. over the whole idea of submission but it's it, it what does when that you mean? say that i find it interesting because even in christian religion we are supposed to be submissive to our spouses and it's not about being um less than or being uh subservient to as much as it is or at least as I interpret it the idea that the man has a role the woman has a role and mm-hmm. together then it creates this cohesive relationship that then works yes yes well and I don't mean to paint the the men in Islam <laughs> In such a bad light, they too have the ultimate responsibility to support the family, to protect the family, and you know all those things too. Uh, it's just that I think in certain areas of the world, whether it's Islam, Christianity, uh, whatever religion, there are certain groups of people who will uh, try to maintain power over other groups of people, and they use a variety of tools to do it. Um, generally, it's men over women, but <laughs> seems to be anyway. Well, and you know we see that in every religion because you know many a war uh, has been fought in the name of religion, and you know even right. if you think about in this country today, you have the Ku Klux Klan who you know went off and and tried to. Um, do great harm to Jews and blacks and and mm-hmm. other groups that they didn't like in the name of religion. Oh, sure, with crosses, carrying crosses while they were doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's and a good so, example. So you know, I I think it's it's no different that in any religion what you find is there are those people who really try to live out the teachings of the religion because my understanding actually is that Muhammad was. Um, extremely uh, liberal in his ideas towards women and the role of women in society. And, um, you know, as opposed to, so any time that you hear 
that, you know, Islam advocates the subservience and the subordination of women, what I always realize and understand is that is not actually consistent with the teachings of Muhammad, nor is it consistent with the teachings of the Quran. It's just right. a weapon that, you know, some people who want to go in that direction have decided to use to try and get there. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and so, we can, we now, can base our... Yeah, go ahead. We can base our... Oh, uh, um, the, I, the research I did was written by female Muslim Americans who, in fact, one of them said why, I can't remember the name of the book, was something like uh, Why Islam is a Woman's Religion. Uh, when I saw the title, I was just shocked because wow. what I was, it's a very repressive religion toward women. That's absolutely not true. As you point out, uh, it can be used as a repressive tool. But um, I'll give an example. Uh, Muhammad lived, I think, from the late 500s up into the early 600s A.D., and at the time, he uh, he was giving these revelations. He'd, he'd receive a message, um, and then he'd speak the message, and that, that became the Quran. Well, anyway, way back then, he gave women the right to divorce, and not only that, the right to own property out of a divorce. And as a lawyer, you know that if you have assets or money or property, that gives you power. Yep. And when you think about what was going on in Christian Europe in 600 A.D. with women, <laughs> wow, yeah, Muhammad, they were the property. Talking, yeah, they were the property like cattle. Um, so for Muhammad to even be talking and thinking these kinds of things, I think, was revolutionary, and just is not brought out today um, by the media or you know, well, I guess the media. I leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going to listen to a clip that uh, is going to give us some insight into the meaning of a word that we hear actually tossed around quite casually in um, the media, and uh, that word is jihad. Take a listen. As a paradigmatic personality, Muhammad has important lessons, not only for Muslims, but also for Western people. His life was a jihad. As we shall see, this word does not mean holy war. It means struggle. Muhammad literally sweated with the effort to bring peace to war-torn Arabia. And we need people who are prepared to do this today. His life was a tireless campaign against greed, injustice and arrogance. He realized that Arabia was at a turning point and that the old way of thinking would no longer suffice. So he wore himself out in the creative effort to evolve an entirely new solution. We entered another era of history on September the 11th and must strive with equal intensity to develop a different outlook. Well, what about that? That all of us should be engaged in a jihad and in a struggle. Um, yeah, it's... Better. Um, yeah, it's um it, she I think she, I agree with her on that. I I don't know if I agree it, entirely about her comments later about Muhammad, but if you're interested we can follow up on that later. Uh yeah, jihad means there's two types of jihad. One is an internal jihad and then there's the external. The internal jihad is supposed to be a lifelong struggle 
against the temptation, what Christians would call the temptation of sin. Um, you know, Christians believe we were born imperfect, uh, we're not gods, <laughs> and so our lives are a constant effort to live a good life and to avoid temptation and sin. Well, it's the same with with Islam. The a, An internal jihad is a lifelong effort to purify yourself, to be ethical, to be honest, to be uh, good and, you know, generous and all the things that we that we equate with with a good life. Um, and that's a constant struggle for any of us. So that that's what internal jihad means. External jihad is, um, I think, originally, now again, I'm not an expert at this, but it was developed or set up originally more as a defense so that if you or your family were attacked, your religion, your faith were attacked, you had a right to fight back to preserve the religion in an external form. Now, of course, the part I don't necessarily agree with her is uh, Muhammad was a military man, too. He led armies around Arabia, forcefully uh, subjugating and and uniting the peninsula under one faith. So certainly he brought peace at some point, but, um, you know, I don't know how... (laughs) Well, that's interesting because, you know, when I heard that, I thought he was the sort of, you know, I I had in my mind's eye this vision of this very soft-spoken, maybe um, soft-footed, yes, oh, peace, peace, my people kind of guy. So it's an interesting thing to hear you say that because that's that's certainly not in my head. I wasn't thinking, you know, this is a military guy. Now, I, I may have this backwards, but originally he started in Medina, and um, the armies that were opposing him beat him and forced he and his people down to Mecca. Or maybe it was reversed. I can't. Maybe he started in Mecca and went to Medina. But in any event, yeah, he lost some significant battles and had to flee with his family and his army uh, to a different city. But um, I still think, regardless of that, the um, what's happened, of course, with the extremist uh, Muslims in the world is they focus on the outer jihad, and there are a, uh, about six or seven verses in the Quran called Sword versus S W R D, where it talks about you know if your enemy um, oh I'm not quoting exactly but you know if your enemy is an infidel and disagrees with you cut his head off or something like that. Oh, well there are verses like that in the Old Testament also. Most of the sword verses in the Quran, however, start by saying that the believer, the the Muslim, should attempt to convert them or tell them about the benefits of Islam. If they don't agree, then you can kill them. So there's a few verses like that, and of course the extremists take those verses literally and say, okay, this is jihad, Muhammad told us to conduct a jihad, and we're going to kill the infidels. I think it's twisted beyond what it was originally intended, but you know. Oh, that's interesting. Some people use it, and um, actually, the, the that that is just the perfect segue to our final clip of the day that talks about the Muslim society being one that really advocates respect. Uh, so, to the listeners, take a listen to this, and um, this will be our 
sort of final external piece of education as we go forward. Most religions have a figurehead, an individual who expresses the ideals of the faith in human form. In contemplating the serenity of the Buddha, Buddhists see the supreme reality of nirvana to which each of them aspires. In Jesus, Christians glimpse the divine presence as a force for goodness and compassion in the world. These paradigmatic personalities shed light on the often dark conditions in which most of us seek salvation in our flawed world. They tell us what a human being can be. Muslims have always understood this. Their scripture, the Quran, gave them a mission to create a just and decent society in which all members were treated with respect. Now, one of the things that I thought was so interesting, Colin, in your book was the relationship between Sarah and her parents, particularly her mom, in the wake of uh, the parents having set her up with this apparently, we thought, amazing guy who turns out to be this dastardly um, terrorist who tried to kill her and the whole bit. And I was just waiting for her to even gently take this as an opportunity to say, okay, you know, can, yeah, can we, can we just sort of back off with the setting me up because, you know, this, this is not going very well because none of the guys that they had set her up with up until this guy had been yeah. even interesting to her. So, but, but she never says that, and not only does she never say that, but neither one of the parents ever even remotely acknowledge um, that there might be an apology of any sort to be given to her for having, you know, foisted this man on her. Talk to us about about why that was. Uh, you want the truth? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I haven't <laughs> thought of it. Um, and toward the end of the book there, I, uh, it was almost pure action, wrap it up quickly and, you know, end the story. But you bring up an excellent question. Um, actually, I, I'm writing my next book. Is still I'm still going to have her as the main character, and that would be a great thing for her to do is have a heart-to-heart talk with her mother. That's a wonderful idea that you just gave me. Uh, but to go back to the relationship with her mother, I... Family, I mean, family is always important, but I think in in the Muslim world, for a couple of reasons, in the United States particularly, kids are more respectful of their parents than, I don't know, maybe the average Christian family. Very gen- this, I know that's a very general, broad statement, and it might be wrong. But that's my sense, and I think it comes, one, from the religion itself that teaches respect for everyone, even people who are not Muslims, um, mm-hmm. in respect for uh, elders and parents, I just think there's more of it, more sense of that in that community than, you know, the typical American family. The other thing is, of course, they're a distinct minority uh, in the religion, uh, and so, you know, I, I think when you're in that situation, you do need to draw strength from each other support each other, and be even more respectful of each other. Um, but in the book, Zira loves her mother, and it, it's kind of like she she knows it, it's a pain in the neck to 
meet these um, set-up dates. On the other hand, she loves and respects her mother to, to the point that she says, oh, all right, I'll, I'll try it again. And, <laughs> and she's kind of lonely, so she figures, well, you never know. What if <laughs> what if yeah. lightning strikes? And here I go. And it was... Um, well, actually, that is a perfect segue because this brings us to the conclusion of the UA show. And, um, Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful uh, talking with you, and I appreciate your interest and your support for my work. Thank you. Well, and it will continue. So when, when Zara comes out, you know, you could probably do a whole series on, on her exploits just based on the cases that you've had in the past. Yes. Well, um, I would certainly encourage you to think about that because I really enjoyed this book. It was it was such a different topic. And you you don't usually, yeah, this is the first sort of real, you know, terrorist kind of book I've read. And living in Minneapolis, I was just tickled because when you described the places <laughs> and the, the stuff that they saw, I thought, oh, I know exactly where that is. I've been there. So thank you, and um, we will have to have you again on on the show to talk about some other thank different you, aspects of relationships. But um, to, to the listeners, you. again, if you would like to pick up a copy of Colin's book, Reprisal, you can find it on Amazon.com or you can find it on um, ColinTNelson.com. And uh, to uh, Colin's last comment that Zara was kind of lonely, join us next week when our topic will be why am I so lonely? There was a 1990 Gallup study that indicated that about 36% of Americans reported feeling lonely. And uh, it's an odd thing given that, uh, you know, we now have more communication tools than ever. We've got smartphones, texting capabilities, tweets, social media, chat rooms, social clubs, book clubs, wine clubs, on and on and on and on. And yet, compared to other ages, we are lonelier than ever. So if you've ever been married, you might think, uh, you know, you're. Uh, if you've never been married, you might think you're lonely because you have never been married. And uh, if you are married, you might be thinking uh, your loneliness is even harder to take because you're married. You're not supposed to be lonely, right? So join us for a riveting discussion, our guest speaker, is going to be an old friend of mine, Sifas Ndramasanga. We're both from Zimbabwe, and uh, he's a counselor who has counseled many lonely people, and he's going to offer some suggestions on the causes and cures for loneliness. If you would like to be a guest speaker on our show, um, do send us a, a note. You can do it from blogtalkradio.com slash or you can do it from uh, the Facebook fan page, The Speedway Show. And uh, listeners, if you would like to also follow the show, you can click on the blue icon under my picture. That says follow on the website at blogtalkradio.com. And um, that concludes our show. And until next week, this is Speedway saying so in peace. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Until next time, live well, live fully, and love deeply. Do you listen to something?